Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. So we have a special episode of Rector's Cupboard um, on offer. And it is also an episode of David Goa's podcast. We kind of recorded it with and for David, but we're going to use it as well. And it speaks a lot about Ivan Illich. Let me tell you. Oh, hi, Allison. Hello. Hi, Amanda. <laughs> Hello. Can you tell me who Ivan Illich is? Uh, Ivan Illich was a Catholic priest. And in the late 1960s, he became um, also kind of a, well, kind of entirely writer, academic, culture critic, uh, all kinds of things. But let me tell you a little bit about the Catholic priest part. He was brought before a panel of inquisition, like literally a panel of inquisition, as he had become, according to some accusations from people within the church, like from church leaders, quote, an object of curiosity, bewilderment, and scandal to the church. And this was when? I was going to say, what in year was this? In 1969, I believe, the Inquisition took And they were place. still using that language. Are oh, yeah, there, long after that they are, were. Are there Inquisitions he, now? When he was actually cast out to some degree, not of the church, but we'll get to it. He didn't realize this till later, but the the head, I don't know, Bishop Cardinal, what, who, who did that, actually used language from... Uh, the Grand Inquisitor chapter oh. in Dostoevsky to say something like like gone gone be gone with you and then and wow. then Illich realized That's not later the person oh my you goodness he was he was actually that. quoting the Grand Inquisitor but oh anyway he was ordered to come and answer questions about his political and doctrinal views he traveled to the Vatican he did a lot of work in Canada as well but he traveled to the Vatican and was ushered to a subterranean room That's Isn't concerning that fantastic? Oh. where his Great judge language. where his judge awaited him he was told the first thing that he was told was that the entire proceeding would be kept secret or else he would be excommunicated from the church. He refused these terms and there was some back and forth. And then finally he was allowed to leave with a copy of the accusations against him. And there would be a number of proceedings like meetings after this. Here are the categories of uh, accusation. Number one, erroneous ideas against the church. There are a bunch of things in there. Number two, bizarre conceptions concerning the clergy. Which bizarre. I thought that's just oh. yeah, that's good. Someone wrote that and, and didn't think that three, it would be used. Subversive oh. interpretations concerning the liturgy and ecclesiastical discipline. Um, he didn't toe the party line in terms of uh, how people should be disciplined. He was accused of, and these are his words now, but they were used like he's quoting what the accusation was. He was accused of being petulant, adventurous, imprudent, fanatical, hypnotizing, and a rebel to authority. I can see why you like him, Todd. Welcome to Rector's Cover. <laughs> <laughs> there were He's eighty-five. Kind of person, there were definitely. eighty-five questions. Yeah, I liked him before I even knew that. <laughs> so I uh, actually discovered him first through my dad. Who my dad was his his career was in like personnel training. He was trained as an engineer, but it was in like human performance. and And he found Illich through Illich's writing on education through a very famous book called Deschooling Society. Um, so, but I didn't, you know, all these things I found out later, there were 85 questions presented to him. The proceedings went on and on and he began to see that there was no way out of this. So he, in the end, resigned his clerical office. So he said that he would suspend all priestly functions, renounce all titles, offices, benefits, and privileges of being a priest. He's no longer a priest after this, but he remains a Catholic. 
which is really interesting. He still really values his Catholic faith. We're talking about Illich for a few reasons. Um, it's super interesting. It's just a compelling story to follow, like to read about. And we're talking today, when we talk with David Goa, uh, about a book by David Cayley, who's Canadian and knew Illich really well. Um, but of course, our friend David Goa, Orthodox theologian, has also <laughs> met Ivan Illich and has a story about that. Of course he has. And, um, but a lot of what what Illich writes relates to what we're doing because it can help with this hopeful exercise we're involved with. He writes about the church. That's where he starts. That's kind of the base and the foundation for everything. But as I said, he doesn't toe the party line. And, uh, and well, for example, when he's in charge of missions, I mean, this is kind of making it super basic, but you know, this is when he's in charge of missions yeah. in Latin America, he's put in charge of it. And he basically, and he says this too, which is interesting. He says, I'm going to make it my job to make sure no more missionaries are sent to Latin America because he has a problem with kind of Christendom and he says the Christian church is just constantly um, vulnerable to corruption. And so he's <laughs> like, We're, we tend to cause more damage mm. than good. Um, this is while he's valuing his faith, but all of this comes from the Christian faith. For us, he matters because many of our listeners have pushed away from a rigid view of faith. Like they've experienced things mm-hmm. you guys mm-hmm. can, can think. Okay, so. <laughs> we think we've talked um, about it. But it's there's possible. sometimes this, this like, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be part of that anymore. But we don't always realize that a lot of people or a significant number of people have said some really good and helpful things to people in those kinds of circumstances before. And Illich is one of those people. We can learn a lot about how to speak hopefully from him. He presented a different view of faith and religion, mattered to him for his whole life. So a few little concepts here. Education. He says, it used to be thought of that there was no salvation outside of the church. I mean, that's a Catholic Yes. point of theology. There's no salvation outside of the church. He says now, when he's writing about education, he says now society feels that there is no salvation outside of education. He said, so see, it's just transferred from yeah. a religion in the church mm-hmm. to not religion and education. Oh, uh, this would have been early 70s, I so think. So he identified this problem. Yeah, so well, no, now we're 2022, 40, but 50, he's seeing yeah. how, right? And he's saying whether people think that there's no salvation outside of the church or no salvation now outside of education, both of these ways of thinking are unhelpful. They're hurtful. They're so then he starts writing about medicine and he says, you know, well, even if we can think that hospitals and medicine are mostly good, there are sometimes sickening effects to medicine. He talks about this contract concept called iatrogenesis. Um, so we understand that as illness acquired in treatment. So you go to the hospital mm-hmm. to get surgery, but you get an infection in the hospital and you die. And of course, COVID and... Yeah, you know, I was going to say COVID, thinking through a pandemic that right? kind of changes everything. Yeah. And, the way and, you conceptualize that. And that as Christians and in the church, we should be thinking about this, mm-hmm. right? How he says, this is, again, he's writing in the 70s at this point, but he says, physicians have replaced clergy. Physicians mm-hmm. are now, have become savior and miracle worker. And I think maybe we're not as steeped in that now but we're still in kind of the shadow of it in terms of culture he talks about scarcity and abundance he says most most damaging ways of thinking work around concepts of scarcity so um from the church you know salvation is scarce only a very few will be Mm -hmm. saved but then in education sorry go ahead yeah no i was gonna say well i mean that's something that you can see picked up in advertising even like how do you get somebody to want to do something as you tell them that you know it's limited time you like you put this urgency you put this scarcity into Mm -hmm. it so i mean it's a concept that i think the church has been doing for a long time about well if if salvation is scarce then there there is an urgency to you need to accept now while you still have a chance 
Yeah, and he, see, he's one of these minds, uh, as David Goa tells us, who was a lot closer to him than we are, um, and you know was at some of his lectures and all of those kinds of things. And um, but Illich is identifying things that for those of us who have pushed away from rigid mm-hmm. views of faith. You find people like this and you go, oh my goodness. Yeah. There's somebody saying these things in a responsible, they still care about faith. Yes. In fact, the reason they're saying these things is because they care about faith. Well, mm-hmm. and I think what I find really compelling about, you know, the the little I know of, of Illich, I mean, you, you and David know much, much, much more, um, is the fact that like, this is not a new concept. Like, this is not something that is, you know, when, when we're looking at, you you know, deconstruction that's right. happening now and that sort of stuff, a lot of like this disillusionment with the church, there, people were identifying these problems, these systemic problems within the institution of the church or within various different institutions yeah. in the church for decades, if not more. I mean, Karl Barth picks up on some of it earlier than Illich. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so... I've, but I never heard about any of these things before. Right. And so I found it really, really encouraging going, oh, oh, this isn't like I'm coming out of left field on this. Like people yeah. who have an immense amount of education and care deeply about their faith also push back on these things a hundred mm-hmm. years ago. Well, and I, I think sometimes it's easy to think that this deconstruction as a movement or whatever is very new, yeah. right? It's new terminology, at least certainly for me in the last few yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, and for a lot of people, it's kind of this thing that's happening now, but he's been talking about those things for so long. And what gives me hope in that is that a lot of deconstruction, and it's okay, is just blowing it all up and walking away completely. Right, right. Where, as you'd said earlier, he remained a Catholic yeah. even after the Inquisition. Yeah. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't get over that term, language, yeah. right? So there's, <laughs> there's hope in that for me in, in that I still care so deeply about my faith. And I do believe I'm going through right now this deconstruction of kind of stripping away some of the things that I was taught and believed and thought and, or thought that I had to believe, yeah. but can still remain holding on to that faith. I don't have to walk away from everything. Yeah, um, he, he that gives me so much hope. He talks as well about well, his concept of the church is interesting. I don't really fully know it or understand it. It is referred to as somewhat in this book. I can't fully remember, but I, if I recall correctly, he presents that you know the church as he sees it, looking ahead. So he's really one of these people who looks looks ahead, mm-hmm. right? So he's yeah. and looking ahead won't be you know these places where you try to get all these people together in this one place and you kind of become this institution. And mm-hmm. was he anti, anti-institutional? I, it sounds yeah, very it much so, like right? It seems like it, And yeah. so he's like, I, he, he would say it's, you know, people getting together. Mm-hmm. That it's, so all these things are going to kind of, some of these things are going to dissolve. He also said, and, you know, we could, you can read deeper into him, uh, um, that the secular, like, is a myth. That, mm-hmm. So really yeah. saying that the idea of the sacred and the secular, there's, there's much more to it than that. But that that the way in which the church, so again, remember his, his criticisms start in the church and then go to society as a whole. So one, basically what he's saying is there's all kinds of problems in our Western societies. Um, and he's saying this, as you said, Alison, decades ago. But if you look, he says, many of them find their root in misunderstandings of what Christian faith should be. So they start in the church yep. and then mm-hmm. they're transferred well, to these right, constructing that us versus them, the sacred and the secular, yeah. right? Sacred and secular. Yeah. So well, even there. He yeah. Says. And when you, and when you think about the, the place that the church used to hold, I, I do believe that we are, we have left Christendom. I think that's pretty obvious, but the fact was 
the church was one of the most powerful entities and the most socially influential entities in, in modern history yeah. up until, well, um, comparatively quite, quite recently. I think some and of the things so, that we're seeing kind of fall of apart, people, like yeah. the rise and fall of Mars Hill and the yep. um, Hill song and some of those things, maybe not as mainstream, like the entirety of culture, but they had an incredible impact on culture. Yep. Right. The Justin Bieber's and the, the, mm-hmm. um, very famous people that were associated with those things that are now kind of collapsing. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. it is even still recent. Yeah. And he, he offers like, you know, those people who can, it's fine to do that. You look at a Mars Hill or Hillsong or whatever. And you're like on the surface, you can see all kinds of things to criticize, right? Views sure. of power, people who abuse, whatever it is. And what, so all those things. Okay, sure. Of course. What Illich does is he basically says like, Oh, the problems are much, much deeper than that, yeah. right? And that there's better ways yeah. to think that, mm-hmm. like, had those people not fallen, you know, whatever the theology that happened, in them, right. I would identify as still is is damaging. Is is in my opinion rotten? Right. It is um, insidious and still present. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, when when I look at at some of these more kind of present or or closer to our time, like iterations of you know failings and fallings in the institution of the church. The problem for me is, I mean, obviously the, the pain and the damage that, that came out of, of those things, but the theology was always bad. Mm-hmm. It was always bad. Um, and so I go, and the theology leads to systems that support and I think increase chance of those sorts of abusive um patterns that we've seen and that have come you know to light more recently more publicly recently um but i mean illich seemed fascinating (laughs) i always get a bit scared with not that i'm saying i'm glad i'm not alive at the same time but there's a degree to that because you're you're aware when you're doing a work like we're doing and that someone who's such a sharp critic like him would look at, you know, like, oh no, how would he critique the <laughs> yes. things that we're doing, right? There's some of the shallowness or the whatever. Or the, um, but still he does, there are so many people, and again, many people listening and others that we connect with who are, as you outlined, Amanda, wanting something yeah. deeper. The pushing away is not only a rejection. Mm-hmm. It is it is saying, you know, um, there's a discontent with when he t- Christendom and post Christendom. Yeah. I'm recalling a quote that he said, I saw it in the book somewhere that he was asked whether we're in a post Christian time. So this would be in seventies, eighties. And he's like, I don't think we're post Christian. What I would call where we are is a- apocalyptic. Um, in hmm. other words that and I think it's not apocalypse. It's like the, you know, movie thinking, um, you know, doom, doom, doom. But in a sense, more that scarcely abundant stuff, mm. like yeah. everything's going to fall apart. Like, and so that he, he was, but he did say he, 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 he hoped that we could get to post-Christian. In other words, he, he thought that Christian faith would do better outside of Christendom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we've seen some of that since those years. So, so it's a great conversation. We have a little warning to issue as well. <laughs> um, we've already co- recorded our conversation with David. And so um, our really wonderful friend, David Goa, Orthodox theologian, uses some language that may be offensive to some. Well, and I mean, I feel like I need to say like, it, it seemed he didn't wish to use it. Oh, he didn't like, even want to say it. No. It even offended him. Yeah. Okay, well, because we'll the whole point was that the language was <laughs> offensive. Anyways, okay. so if, if yeah, may, maybe listen to this without kids in the car so or something. So enjoy the conversation. <laughs> we will note um, 
in in the notes, uh, the book that we're talking about, the David Cayley book. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, enjoy the conversation. Thanks, you too. Thanks. So when I was uh, young and my father, I was living with my dad, single dad at the time, and and uh, I remember he read this book by Ivan Illich. And then, you know, as I became an adult, he would refer back to it. So it was something that was obviously in his, in his mind. And the book was called Deschooling Society. And my dad was someone who worked, um, and we would say, uh, he's of blessed memory. He worked in uh, personnel development, human performance type of stuff. And so that's why this concept of education and how people um, grow and uh, mattered to him. But I didn't know a lot about Illich. And uh, then I read some stuff through the years. And and then now uh, my friend David Goa, who we've had on Rector's Covered a number of times. And uh, I didn't know that that uh, Ivan Illich is, is someone that uh, David uh, met and knows his work like much more extensively than my dad did. But Illich to me, and so we're here today to talk about a book by David Cayley on Ivan Illich, his life and his work. Um, but for, so here's where I'm coming from in the conversation. And then, uh, David, you can, uh, tell us where, where you're coming from or, uh, that as we, as I think about hopeful theology, like, like particularly Christian faith, the Christian church in the days ahead, I, I can see that there are people that lived, you know, before our time, before my time, certainly, and said things that I think would have been considered revolutionary at the time, some of them. And but now are we are reaching back to to rediscover them? Some people are, and so for those listening, I just want to say some of the things that you are feeling. Can't the church be more hopeful than this? Doesn't evangelism look different than this? Doesn't uh, speaking about the word look different than this? All these kinds of things. Um, Ivan Illich might have uh, a great deal to say to you, and so. In our conversation over the next little bit here, we're just going to talk about Ivan Illich and some of the things that he said and why they resonate with each of them. So welcome, David Goa. Uh, great to speak with you again. And we've been talking about speaking about this book for a while. <laughs> we've talked about a bunch, of, a bunch of other things. And so, I mean, you can let us know how you're coming here, but the first thing I would ask you is to kind of your background um, connection to experience of Ivan Illich. Who was he and why should we care what he had to say? Well, you, you mentioned de-schooling society, which sort of put him on the larger map. Uh, he was a Jesuit, Viennese and Russian background, a good dollop of the Jewish bloodstream in him, which is quite obvious. Uh, he um, benefited from not having to go to school when he was very young. <laughs> so de-schooling society is also a little autobiographical hmm. and of course when I found out about that book I loved it because school for me was always a form of prison so I was delighted to hear that somebody realized that and was suggesting otherwise I mean the main thesis of that book and I think it is still very much worth thinking about is that in the history of human culture uh, religion was the way in which people were initiated into the mysteries of life. 
They were initiated into maturity. They were initiated into the sexual life. They were initiated into being a warrior. They were initiated into being a shaman. They were initiated into death. And initiation, uh, and we see this also in the sacraments of the church, initiation has two faces to it. It involves a death, and it involves a rebirth. So we see it vividly in baptism. We are baptized into Christ's death. It is turning away from, as Anabaptists beautifully put it, it is turning away from the world. I'm no longer going to do the world the way the world does the world, out of self-interest. I'm going to do the world with my eyes and ears attentive to what the Holy Spirit is unfolding in front of me and not to the prism of my projections upon it. I'm going to be attentive and listen for its meaning as opposed to imposing it. Mm -hmm. So initiation is really where Illich begins with this and Mm -hmm. makes the point that uh, the modern world's main instrument of initiation is education. Education is the religion of our form of modernity. Yeah, so he says, um, at one point I've got it in my notes, he says that He's criticizing the church, though he was at some point a Catholic priest, and then there's a trial. Always a, and we can, always he's always a Catholic. a Catholic priest, but he kind of had that trial that um, before the church. And uh, so, one thing that I have in my notes in the book is that is that he said the church said there's no salvation outside of the church, and then that shifted to education and the like. There's no salvation outside of education, of course, and yeah. so the and education the, has become what the church once was. That's the dogma. It's the unexamined dogma. Of our, of our period. All you have to do is ask yourself how many people you know that have been, A, successful, that have not followed the educational pattern. You can find a few, but not many. Yeah. Not many. Yeah. I first, uh, I mean, I read him when he was still being published in pamphlet form. Really? Ostensibly. <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he established his center in Caranavaca, Mexico, the yeah. Center for Intercultural Documentation. Right. And that was established and funded largely by the Roman Catholic Church because the Pope in the, in the late 50s had called for 40%, if my memory serves me, of the religious in North America to learn Spanish and engage in re-evangelizing Latin America because the Pentecostals and the Evangelicals were being so successful in bringing, you know, true Christianity <laughs> to all of those uh, quasi-pagan Catholics in Latin America. Oh, no. So Illich uh, established uh, Siaduk, uh, one arm of which was to teach Spanish to uh, all of these religious yeah. And so the various dioceses that would send them down there would pay the bills for this. Illich was a friend of many interesting people, not the least of which was Che Guevara, and, uh, and the great scholar of pedagogy, um, Paulo Freira. Oh, yeah. 
and so it was in discussions, if my memory serves me, with Paulo Ferreira, that they came up with this very compelling way of teaching Spanish very quickly to all of these religious that were coming down. And, of course, priests and nuns particularly, they're pretty serious people, especially the nuns. And so if they decide to do something, they're going to throw themselves into it. So it was very intensive. But what Illich did as well, knowing that language can be both the clearing of being, can give you a glimpse into being itself and certainly into another culture, but that you need... You need to uh, be initiated hmm. into that culture as well. So he did a series of seminars with all those people that came, uh, which were f- under the flag of inculturation. He did these with a very clear eye to opening up for all of these very devout people what... Spanish culture in Latin America and other indigenous cultures were all about. He did it with a clear eye, knowing that if they ever glimpsed it, if they could, if he could get them to glimpse it, then they would realize that they had nothing to give them. So they may enjoy their time for a month (laughs) or two, but they wouldn't stay. So it took the Vatican, I don't know what it was, 10, 12 years. 15 years. To kind of catch on to, to what he to was doing. To catch on what was happening <laughs> here. Uh, but that was the time of the flourishing of Siaduk. I, 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 I met him personally in Chicago in the, in the 60s when he was brought by, um, by one of the church groups that was working on the west side of Chicago under the, under the rubric of community development. Okay. And the head of that, uh, I think it was the Chicago Urban League, uh, was a friend of Illich and brought him. And I heard from a, uh, a friend of mine that he was going to be there. I can't recall how she had heard about this, but she had some connections in the black community. So this is on the west side of Chicago, yeah. which is in the heart of very difficult part of, of Chicago, which normally white guys like me don't walk those streets. But I was so fascinated by him. I I knew that I wasn't welcome. I knew that this was for blacks only. Uh, But, you know, when you're 20, I don't know, 5 or 24 or something, sometimes, you know, you ignore that. Yeah. So I went over there and uh, saw some people entering, but realized that if I entered by the front door, I wouldn't likely get in. going back out again. So I waited for a little while and then went up the fire escape. And found my way in. So it was about 40 or so preachers uh, and community organizers from the West Side. And um, a couple of them glanced at me, but I sat at the back out of the way. And um, then Illich came in. And, you know, he's been preoccupied with this question of development. What do we mean by that? You see, the opposite of growth, well, maybe I have to be careful about our words here. I'll use a different image. I think for somebody like Illich, who along with being a canon lawyer, Mm, was of course, uh, had a PhD in philosophy and in medieval history. And because he was grounded in medieval history, he had a place to stand 
to understand the modern world. You can't understand the modern world if you From stand in it, modern, yeah. because the modern world, in some sense, doesn't exist. It's a chimera. So you have to have a place to stand. And he stood in the 14th century, the 12th century, and, um, and looked at it and could begin to understand it a little bit. So he came in, um, jumped up on the desk in front of uh, these people, and he, he, of course, had a lovely accent. And he's a beautiful-looking man, very, very, um, very trim with very... Um, well, he likes to talk about eyes and what it means to mm. gaze on somebody, to actually... You know, vision is not seeing something. It is a way of seeing. It is to see, as opposed to seeing something. Apparitions are not about visions. So, um, he began to ask for people's words. He said, I am illiterate. I am illiterate. Right, right In off the 15 start. languages, please give me your words. Give me your words. So then he began to stalk the room, trying to get the words. Because here was a group of men from the west side of Chicago, largely, working in the ghetto, living there too, I suppose, the vast majority of them, in a deeply marginalized part of America, which was in a moment where the language of revolution and the impulses for revolution were on the surface. Not only had Martin Luther King been doing his work, but so had Malcolm X. Yep. And you had in Chicago um, various gangs, and you also had um, various black revolutionary groups uh, that were at work and were on the streets. So he began to try and find the words. And as these words slowly began to come, he made two columns on the blackboard. Uh, Revolution, salvation, redemption. So these are the words that the these people are the words there themselves people, people are finally offered up. People are offering them up. And then they offered up other words too, short words like sin and pig for cops and cops and hmm. things of that nature. So he had these two columns that he developed. And after a time, he paused in front of them and he pointed out that that a set of these words were Anglo-Saxon. And he wasn't about to talk about those. The ones he wanted to talk about were the Latin and Greek words. And he proceeded to read them off, to rhyme them off like a Latin liturgy. Revolution, salvation, redemption. You know, he just rattled them (laughs) off. It was beautiful to see. But he did it in order to set them aside. He then said, these words, the ancients understood these words. That's why they built gods and goddesses to these words. These words are often idolatrous. And then turns back and stalks the room again. Says, now, give me your words. Your words. 
He erases what's on the blackboard. It's a long silence. I mean, people were a little stunned. You know, I would say that people on the west side of Chicago are much more accustomed to jive talking and to the language of the street, which Illich was to some extent engaged with here, than whites in a suburban community. I don't think Illich would have gotten anywhere there. That's why he would never go there. (laughs) So... uh, he, he stalks the room again, and all of a sudden, one person says, and you know, I don't normally use these words, these, well, they're, these they're expressions, word, yeah. but these were their words. Yeah. And what he was doing here is so remarkable, I think, in its reach. So all of a sudden, from the middle of this group, now with, I would say, with an elevated sense of anger, mm. I think I could feel that sense that, that we had moved to a different layer. Not anger at Illich, but anger at what was being confronted here. You need to speak about what's real. I'm no longer interested in some kind of religious patina or even some kind of revolutionary patina. Yeah. So the word comes, son of a bitch. And Illich reels around and writes this on the blackboard. Give me your words. And he begins to stalk it again. And after a time, someone said, Motherfucker! With a certain kind of harshness, it's a it's a it's a awful, awful term. It is a horrific term. And he goes and writes it across from son of a bitch. We now have two categories. And he spent that day from nine in the morning to five in the afternoon. He spent that day using these two terms to help us understand our relationship, our intimate and natural relationship to institutions, Mm. church, state, law, industry, revolutionary movements, And of course, as you know from his work, which examines, his books are all small. Yeah, they are, yeah. They're all really essays. Yeah. Examining not only education and schooling, but medicine, gender, uh, work itself, things of that nature. So those two, you know, this is a very vivid memory to me, and I've often, I was, when, when you invited me to come and talk about this with you, I thought... I've often pondered them to try and make sense of what, in retrospect, these powerful categories, what are they really about? Where is he going with this? And I mean, I heard where he went with it, but the words are so startling to me because I was not raised on the streets of the west Mm. side of Chicago. Um, 
So just a couple things about that, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. Yeah. Though, in a sense, I mean, at the end of the day, well, let me come to that. In the course of it, he mentions something about the work at Cernavaca and in Mexico and all the religious people coming down there and how wonderful it is, how much he loved Mexico. And, and he said at some point, not only in reference to the work that they were doing with all the religious, but it, to us, to each of us, he said, come to Mexico. Yeah. Come to Mexico. Come and see how beautiful it is. Come and see how beautiful, how beautiful the people are. And you have to remember, this is the 60s, and it's all men. Mm-hmm. So I apologize for this, but it's part of what was said in that period. He said, and come, and come and see our women too, if you must. But please, please, do not bring us anything. Hmm. And I think this is the heart of his work. We have nothing to bring. Or to use Shakespeare's beautiful lines in Lear. Love comes empty-handed, bearing nothing. What Illich, I think, is centrally concerned about, underneath all of his extraordinary critique, is what I call presence. The ability to regard, to be attentive, to listen, to what we don't know, and to not presume about it, to just uh, attend. I'm so grateful you put it that way. And I think, you know, when we talk about, for our podcast, Rector's Cupboard, and speaking about hopeful theology, and uh, we try to we find ourselves in these spaces where the company that you keep, which we're grateful for, you can see people who are just, you know, pushing away from the church or rejecting the church or doing that, which we don't, that's fine. And <laughs> that some people, that's where they are and what they need. And um, But for us, I think it's one of the reasons that Illich is writing, as I read, especially this David Cayley book, it just so much made sense to me. And it's that, that, uh, uh, so when you speak about this experience that day, give me your words and the kind of critique of institution or the limits of institution. And then this call to presence, the ability to regard that there is something that I see. It's so hopeful in so much of what he writes. It's he as in my reading of Cayley, at least Illich remained faithful to his Catholic faith all the way through, even, even after this trial and even, um, he's completely unique in that regard. He really is. Yeah. As you know, in the, in the, in the mid-60s, through the 65 and 70, after the Vatican Council, probably 40% of the North American religious yeah. uh, let, let, asked to be released from their vows. Yeah. Illich he didn't. asked to be released from all of his vows except the vow of celibacy and poverty <laughs> and to say the Mass every day. He did it exactly the opposite 
of how the others had done it. Yeah, so there's this, like, you know, his critique of institutions doesn't, you know, when you when you give it some time, and the, you're right, the books are small. The But it doesn't just produce kind of a frustration and an anger. And you realize, oh, he's actually aiming for something better. I think it, Kaylee refers to um, one of the things that strikes me in Kaylee's book is what Illich has to say about the secular. Um, and for me personally, it's things I felt I, growing up in the evangelical church, and that you just see this kind of constant, like the secular as enemy, um, almost sometimes as if it was another one of the dangerous faiths. You know, this, and... Um, A competing religion. Yeah, when you speak about virulent secularism, I hear something different yeah. than, than I was hearing in that, where, because, and it's something closer to Illich, which makes sense, given your, your background. Illich, at one point, Kaylee refers to Illich saying the church needs to be thrown into the seculum. Mm-hmm. In other words, he's saying the church needs to be radically secular. Mm-hmm. And he said, I think he said something like, I hope, I hope priests mm-hmm. like coming after me, mm-hmm. you know, push away from this kind of mm-hmm. opposition in this way to realize that the way to express faith, the way to discover faith, the way to speak faith is exactly in this. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so refreshing. Things like that are so mm-hmm. refreshing mm-hmm. to me. But mm-hmm. that's kind mm-hmm. of my reflection on some of... Mm-hmm. Um, another one is the uh, scarcity and abundance. Scarcity and abundance. I had not come across that so much in the stuff I'd read from Illich. Kaylee brings it out. And back to the concept of salvation. That's one of those words that he erased from the board. And I had not heard that story, obviously. because, um, But... So, you know, we all interpret through our own lens. But when I hear Illich talking about scarcity and abundance, I realize, oh, yeah, what he's saying here makes sense in my background. In the evangelical church, salvation was taught as something that was scarce. Yeah. It was only for a very few. And something that you needed. You have to have it, but most people never get it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which meant that the institution now has incredible power. Mm-hmm. And so these kinds of critiques to say, mm-hmm. no, this salvation, whatever the proper word is, whatever, the, is you, you can't understand it unless you understand it from a place of abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the kind of doors this opens mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there are many people mm-hmm. listening to this, and pe- you know, many won't want to you know, do this work and delve into somebody who wrote mm-hmm. these years ago, and his language at times can sound dated and whatever, and people can upset at him for this, that, and the other. Um, but there is so much to be heard here um, for something more hopeful than some of the things that have been kind of dominated by institutions. Um, but that's my Yeah. And you, you have been concerned a lot about um, people within, within the evangelical church and other churches as well who are leaving and who are deciding they've just had enough. So let me go back and ask you to to think about that in light of these two categories that Illich laid out uh, and what I draw from that, the little bit I draw from it. Maybe you can help me draw more deeply from it. So the first category, son of a bitch. This shouldn't surprise us. It certainly doesn't surprise me as a, a Lutheran boy because, you know, when I laid on the floor in my family's living room, um, the bookshelf, among other things, had um, the Book of Concord. Yeah. And the Book of Concord was written by Melanchthon. And if there was guests over, 
this is probably by the time I was 13 or so, when I managed to cultivate the Norwegian devil on my left shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) And if those guests were Catholic, which wasn't often, but it did occur, one of my sisters is named for a Catholic nun, so that's rather remarkable, given, given the serious Lutheranism of my parents. But I would take the Book of Concord off, and of course you don't have to look very far in it before you read about the Hur of Babylon, yeah. which is of course the identifier of the Catholic Church. But of course that comes from somewhere. It comes from that long revelatory tradition in the Hebrew Bible, reaching its apex perhaps with Hosea, the prophet, yep. married to the harlot. But of course in Christian teaching, in teaching about the spiritual life, this is of course about about me and about you. It's about the human heart and the human mind and the way in which we are inclined to take a simulacrium for what is real. Yep. How we're inclined to to uh, go after various manifestations of the sacred and assume they are God. To elevate good things and make them divine. And that, of course, is, you know, the corruption of the worst, or the corruption of the best is the worst. So, um, Illich had such a keen sense of that. So, my sense is that this notion that all of our institutions... Yeah. Education, law, medicine, politics, medicine, uh, and our sort of ideological silos. Yeah. The current one of gender yeah, and he, sexuality, he for example. Yeah. All of these are uh, significant. We are the sons and daughters of our institutional law, of our institutions within our society. We're the sons and daughters of a particular society in a particular moment with a particular history. It's not that we are to be reduced to that, but we are that. We are that. That is, that is the landscape of our memory. That is the, uh, the population of our imagination. And it can often be the movements of our mind and our heart. So all of us are sons of bitches, uh, of the birth giver for us, is is, uh, a mother. Yeah, yeah. And that's why it's so hard for us to to get any distance on this, so hard for us to appreciate what's going on there. And that is true, of course, for people who are in a state where they have experienced the injustices of the yes. world in such a deep way yes. as those men were on the west side of Chicago that day, and where they'd finally gotten enough on their feet to be able to say no, Yeah, enough on their feet to, to long for a revolution. I often wonder what the connection is between revolution and transfiguration. Wow. So revolution, we must remember, is just coming around again. Huh? You know, it means to come around again. 
And I think Ehlich had a keen sense of that, that oh, coming yeah. around again is not oh, yeah. good enough. Or as, as some have said, uh, as the great poet says, W.H. Auden says, even revolution is not, even protest is not enough. You know, you may need to protest, but it isn't enough. It isn't, it isn't what works. I mean, in the end, and we see that in our society, with the kind of virulent politics we're in, the siloed politics, people both on the right and the left, progressives and conservatives, are much more interested in making declarative statements which signal their own righteousness than they are in finding ways to talk across silos. It's so well said. You know, we just want to do that. We want say to, the thing again. Yeah, and we'll as if that's going to be meaningful instead of trying to find a way to hear what is the, what is the diagnosis coming from the other side. I know I don't like their prescription, but what's their diagnosis? Right. Maybe they're diagnosing something significant, and maybe I can find another way with my diagnosis and theirs of understanding a bit of a whole of a larger picture. And then maybe, just maybe, we can find a way at least not to continue to be enemies, but to restore each other to, to humanity again and then maybe work to something different. So that yeah. initial image that we are all sons of institutions, yeah. daughters of institutions, which are always and everywhere inadequate. Yeah. I don't want to say broken. I mean, we could say that. They often are. But they're always inadequate. But they're sometimes we, broken. They're always of inadequate. Of course. They're yeah. always inadequate. And our temptation is to think they're it. You know, as you talked about earlier in your little comment about about Illich and uh, whether the church and those within the church should engage the, sec- yeah. the secularum yeah. thoroughly. So if we think the institution is it, and I want us to speak about these two terms too, right. if we think it's it, it's a kind of object, how then do we live? Well, we live as its servants, I was a curator in a museum yeah. for years, so I used to say, I am a civil servant. Yeah. I am a servant of the civitas. I seek not to be a servile savant, yeah. although sometimes <laughs> it's tempting. <laughs> so we're all part of those institutions. That is not saying that we somehow can free ourselves from those institutions. We can be free within them, but we can't necessarily free ourselves from them. So what is our responsibility? Wow, here's, my, here's my take on that. Institutions are born out of, it seems to me they're born out of a, a, a moment of genius, a moment in which somebody sees that there needs to be some structured way of engaging a dimension of human life. You know, I wonder if you think of initial early Neolithic political organization Mm -hmm. or any of those sorts of things, those moments 
where somebody sees the need to put two things together which hadn't been put together before. So there's a genius there. But what happens with institutions is that they develop a structure and the people with who have the authority within it forget what its vocation is. So in medicine, is our medicine concerned about public health? Or is our medical establishment and all of our institutions much more concerned about, well, we just have been through the pandemic, much more concerned about their legitimacy in the face of questions of safety, for example. Or is uh, doctors, particularly here, I've had I have excellent doctors, which I really appreciate, and I, I would not include them in this. I right. think they really do have the gift. Uh, are they able to see what their gifts are and what they aren't and what the limitations is? And are they able to, to help yeah. me decide on the limits of all that and to decide when it's over, when it's no longer useful to avail myself of what they can offer because it will just make things worse. So, wow. I mean, you, you bring that up in the context of medicine, but of course, and it's, it's enough to think about there, but you can translate it to these other institutions, including the church. Of course. Yeah. That's what, enough. And, what and is more the vocation? would be more damaging than helpful. Of course. What is the vocation? You have been a clergy person. Yeah. What is the vocation of the, of the priest? of the pastor, and what are the limits yeah. of that vocation? What, um, because if we don't get the proportions right, and this was a preoccupation of Illich in was his it? latter stages, he really saw the great problems being questions of proportion and scale. What is the proportion law? law what is the proportion that's appropriate for any particular thing? And you're faced this with your organization. Yeah. You know, what's the proportion at which it works well, which it can move and dance? And if you go beyond that, what happens? So we live in a society which is addicted to growth. And we have been given a revelation. The revelation is called cancer. Cancer is ubiquitous. We all carry it within us. What is cancer? I say it's a revelation. What is it a revelation of? What's well, a revelation of how cells grow and that if a cell, which is a good thing, there's nothing wrong with the cell, it's lovely, it's beautiful, it's God's little cell, but if that decides to just replicate and replicate and replicate and replicate and replicate, it's cancer. Cancer is unsustainable growth. Yeah. So our society and our institutions and our own personal lives are like that. They're all about what is the proportion at which we should live so we can be present to things and not bury ourselves in that which is good. I, for example, suffer from the sin of gluttony. I suffer from other sins as well. 
But the sin of gluttony is maybe the easiest one to yeah, talk about. Yeah, and you about. can talk, yeah, exactly, it's acceptable. To and for me, this isn't about eating. I think I pretty much eat decently, and I'm never particularly tempted for seconds or anything like that. But I am a glutton for ideas and for those that think about ideas. So now I am in the last stages of my life, and I have to begin, you know, to thin down. Because what are my kids going to say if they have to deal with all this? <laughs> so I have to let go of things. So that's yeah. a crisis. Here are all yeah. of these books and essays and stuff that I, I was so certain I would get to that. And I know that I never will. Mm, so now what do I do? So how to get the proportions right, the scale right. I'm, I love a phrase that a colleague of mine at the U of A used. He's the first one I saw it, heard use it. And he talked about local goodness. And he talked about it in connection with the university. The University of Alberta is a big mega university. And he said he had the brass to say at a faculty council meeting where the president was talking about her utopian dreaming about raising another $300 million for this, that, or the other thing. He had the brass to say, could we spend, you know, we've now spent two hours on, on your development proposal could we spend 10 minutes on thinking about local goodness? Here's the brightest people in Alberta from all disciplines sitting around the table. Yeah. And nobody except him had one word to say. That's amazing when you think of it. So, I mean, Illich's preoccupation is that we have... Our form of modernity, you know, coming out of the Enlightenment, has progress at the center. Mm. And progress, development is understood in a very particular kind of way, which is not organic, which has nothing to do with community, which has nothing to do with anything. We even turn, we even turn the psychological and spiritual techniques in our society into personal development. Yep self-actualization, yeah. all of these terms which, which have led to a very strange way of configuring this society. The, uh, the correct proportion, the when, when are you doing damage instead of good, I think to some degree, the lo- yeah. concept of local goodness. Uh, one of the words that, I don't think it was the first time I heard it, but it was the first time I kind of noted it. I think I think you say e- iatrogenesis is that the proper way to say iatrogenesis it? iatrogenesis yeah. iatrogenesis um, he and in in Kaylee's book speaking about uh, Illich he talks about that Illich used this term you know in the context in which it exists uh, to do with medicine mm-hmm. um, and so you can you know tell us a bit more about it and stuff but my understanding is that this is the term that the way we you know us lay people would understand it would be. Um, a lot of a lot of people get really sick at hospitals, <laughs> and so when I, and and hospitals, you know, good medicine goes. Oh, how are we making people sick? And starts to do so even infection control within a hospital and this kind of thing. I sometimes think, what would that look like in churches? Yeah. To say, wow. uh, we have to pay attention 
to how many people have become very, very ill in this place. Of course, we intended the other. Yeah. And many people were healed. But a lot of people have become sick and a lot of people have died. And we should, we should try to change some of that. That's, that's beautiful. That is a lovely proposal. So the, the, the primary issue in, with iatrogenic conditions of medicine isn't so much that diseases spread, although from Illich's point of view, the fact that you gather them all together in one place, <laughs> the whole idea that a hospital has become a pest house as opposed to a, 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 host, a, a place where you host people on the way. Right, oh yes. A small proportion, small proportions, you host them along the way, uh, is of course an institutional manifestation of that. But he also was concerned about how our way of treating dis-ease, we treat it as an enemy. It's a dis-ease. Well, maybe you need to learn how to become at ease with what you are currently dissing. Hmm. Maybe it shouldn't be dissed. Maybe, maybe the issue is how to live with it, how to allow your suffering to become an occasion of knowledge, an occasion of purification, an occasion in which you become more whole. So, um, iatrogenic diseases, I mean this, and there are doctors that care about this these days. So I recently was at my doctor's office and he was talking about, you know, I'm like all men my age, I have a enlarged prostate. Yeah. And so typically, um, and my, my father died of bowel cancer, so... Once you're over 50, they like to have yeah. a look at your lower regions and see how you're doing. And the, 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 the gold standard has been to do this every five years. I said to my doctor a couple of years ago, you know, when I reach 75, I'm not going to do that anymore. Why should I? I mean, you might find something, but it'll be another 10 years. And if you make 75 without any serious problem. So he then went through the steps with me. He said, Look, 75 is just a, a number. You're still vital for somebody who's 70. Oh, no, I didn't mean to say somebody who's 75. <laughs> he said, um, you may live another 15 years. Yeah, sure. But he then gave me the stats oh, yeah. because there is, there is, the stat looks better for what can happen if they find cancer uh, and can do it. But the other stat is they perforate people's bowel when they do this and things of that nature, and that leads to huge problems. So iatrogenic disease is really probably about, I think Illich used to say it was 80% of all our medical uh. establishment is about addressing medically-induced issues. So, do we stop it? Well, not likely. Yeah. But I, I wanted to pursue this suggestion you have here about the church, and it's doing a kind of iatrogenic assessment 
of how what we have done has both healed and harmed mm-hmm. and can we can we can we make some sense out of that you know illich kaylee does such a nice job of this and it goes back to those two categories i think as well yeah. illich talks about the church as it yeah and by that he means the church, or at least this, these are my words, not necessarily his. I've often thought, mainly in my conversations with progressive Christians, uh, people that understood themselves as progressives and liberals, and who were preoccupied with social justice, yeah. a range of issues that I also am preoccupied yeah. with and care about. But I was struck by the fact that they always gave me the impression that the church had some secret knowledge about this, that somehow or other the church's perspective was special, and I could never find out what was special about it. I thought they were just joining forces with other places within our society that wanted to deal with this in some way. It didn't seem to me, it seemed to me like a good thing, but that it wasn't particularly Christian. Mm. You know, social justice doesn't strike me as Christian, it strikes me as human. Human, Exactly. You know, and to make it Christian, well, I mean, I'm not sure what that means. So, um, the church as it, as institution, is something that Illich is saying we can examine like any yep. other institution yep. through the, the fine tools of sociology, of which he plies in an absolutely singular way. Oh, yeah. But then he goes on, and he says, but, you know... The church is also she. The church is she. And who she is as she is of an entirely different order. So my sense, Todd, and maybe you can do a little exercise for us here about this, around your sense of the iatrogenic Mm. diagnosis of the church, my sense is that so often in the church we get preoccupied with the it part and we've added a number of things to that. We've added particular kind of moral yes. life and what is good about that. And there's many things that are good about that. Particular kind of belief system, particular kinds of relationships yeah. that all are codified a yeah. little bit are given a form that that is as deemed as the good and and what is right to do and that is drawing boundaries of in and out all that seems to me to also be part of it part of the institutional embodiment of the church and of its of its reach and of its disciplines the church is she. My sense is the church is she doesn't do that. The church is she is of a different order. It's, it's nurturing a stance of contemplation and attention. Illich has a a phrase in his book. Can I read this? Of course. And maybe you can run with it a little yeah. bit. Uh, Kaylee quotes this. It's, this is Illich. It is my thesis 
that only the church can reveal. It's interesting that he uses this word, to reveal. I would use the word to unveil. Okay. It is my thesis that only the church can reveal to us the full meaning of development. To live up to this task, the church must recognize that she is growing powerless to orient or produce development. It can only reveal it fully if it recognizes it is powerless to orient or to do it. The less efficient she, this is the church as she, the less efficient she is as a power, the more effective she can be as the celebrant of the mystery. Oh, thank you for reading that quote because that you you, uh, you also guide me along the trail in terms of how I would respond from my own personal experience and my own. Uh, I mean, I know uh, people listening and others like for what what it means to be um, to carry some of the frustrations <clears throat> or. Uh, the things that make us bristle in any institution. And so right now we're talking about the church where you're in that thing, you're in that place. Largely you are grateful for that. You, it's, it uh, is key in your formation, all those other kinds of things. But then you're like, but there's something, there's something here that is troubling, which is fine. We could say that in anything. Uh, This quote to me and your um, introduction before it and moving from the church as it to the understanding of the church as she. Uh, and so then to build from this quote, I can see that a lot of my frustration, even in years as, as a pastor, um, decades, was the idea that, uh, so look, thinking of the people, the congregation, the other leaders, whatever, and thinking, oh, you guys think that the church accomplishes this thing. It's a, you know, thank God for the institution of the church or else the world's going straight to hell. And, and I think well before hearing you speak like you just did or coming across Illich, um, and it would only be by God's grace, I was like, no, this, this thing can never accomplish anything meaningful in that regard, but we can celebrate it. Um, and then the problem becomes if we fail to do that, and we start to treat the world as the problem to be solved by this institution that we have. And then we start to talk a lot more about stances. And that to go back to the hospital thing with the, um, the, you know, the harm that can be done, we wind up, I would say to be, grace, to, to, you know, be gracious about it, Sometimes I don't know if I, sometimes I thought, I think it was intentional. I'm not saying on my part, I hope, but we wind up actually preventing people from seeing God. And so, you know, my dad's interest in de-schooling society as someone who was in personnel development and human performance and such, you know, and given to kind of some of the, the great ways that Illich used words and, I, I don't know that it totally sums up Illich, but my dad would say to me, he's like, you know, he's describing the school as the place, if you were going to design an institution that 
ensured that people wouldn't learn, <laughs> then you design kind of what we've designed. Now, I think there's been a lot of changes since, since he was saying that. So then those are the reflections I see sometimes in the church. And yet, I love the church. And clearly Illich did. Yeah. And yet, so he gives us, this is why I'm in love with this kind of work. He gives us something meaningful, thoughtful, considerate, that's not just, you know, my own personal experience of this thing and, oh, I was so hurt or whatever. Which He gives us something better to critique um, the it part or to say here's the limits of what that can do. But then for people like myself and I think many others, opens our eyes to see that there can be something better. There are better ways of speaking about this. So, so that's my reflection. It's, it's to... So when I say things like, because I mean it, I'm so grateful for all those years I was pastor, I'm grateful for the church I was at, all those other kinds of things. I mean it 100%. And in my mind, there's also this like, I always, always, almost always felt those limits. Uh, and and you're working among people who, if, if, they, if the church is only seen as it, and oftentimes for, I think, people like myself, people who are, identified as pastors and employed that way and most of the work are people are evaluating you on that on that level not the other how are you helping our institution you know flourish and i think the real vocational call to get back to what you're saying is something very very different than that that's my kind of uh, yeah i um I come back to the that second category. At the end of that day, when Illich was pulling on the threads together, there on the west side of Chicago, he sat again on his knees on the table. There had been a very intense seven hours that had taken place. He said, these were his last words. He's not an emotional person in the sense that with an intense gift of tears as, right. you, as you have. <laughs> but he is not hard-hearted. And he sat and he said, after a brief silence, he said, I am the son of a bitch. I am the son of the Roman Catholic Church. I am the son of a bitch. But God help me. If I ever become a motherfucker. So my my sense is what is he getting at? The church is the whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ. Yeah. She is both. She she 
is that perhaps embodied in in one's little parish? Yeah. In one moment in one's little parish. But her stories, her songs, her rituals, even at best, her halting theological insights, as long as they're halting, <laughs> yeah. are glimpses and gestures towards the mysterium, towards the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all, and towards our encounters with that which we do not understand. And I think the second category he was using there was the warning, was to say, be careful. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't think that you, that you can fruitfully inseminate that which gave you birth. You must learn to love. And that love only exists where the other is and where you are attentive to the unfolding. If you want to push that, if you want to make it happen, that's different. That's... Attentiveness to the unfolding. Versus forcing. Thank you so much. And uh, I know, I, can, I know, I can speak for David in this. It feels rather uh, presumpt- presumptuous to speak for David, but uh, um, Illich is Illich is worth reading. And certainly, this book from Kaylee is worth reading. It's it's not the easiest reading, but um, it's just a big book too. Just physically, a, 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 you know. But um, I never read big books. <laughs> But this was a page turner. It was a page turner. Yeah. So uh, you know, if you're interested in reading it, we'll we'll show you how in the notes and um, engage with us on it. So, David, thank you so much. Great Blessings. to see you. Rector's Cupboard releases a new episode every other Friday. The podcast is a production of Reflector Project. Hosts are Todd Weeb and Allison Williams. Cupboard master for tastings and locations is Ken Bell. Production and social media by Amanda Miner. For past episodes and other content, visit rectorscupboard.ca. Thanks for listening.